Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. We tend to think of female performance as something which began with the first actresses on the London stage in the mid-17th century an event which disrupted a tradition of all-male performance established under Elizabeth I. But girls and girlhood had been integral to both plot and creation from as early as around 950 when Hrotswitha of Ganderheim wrote her plays. And so when Margaret Hughes, the first professional actress, stepped out onto the London stage in 1660, she followed a legacy of rich and varied female performers and creators. In fact, girls and young women were dancers, actors, translators and dramatists. They were creators and performers in civic pageants, court masks, household performance and royal entertainments, and as much part of the history of performance as their male counterparts. Here to discuss the lives of these incredible girls and the performance of girlhood across the centuries is Deanne Williams, Professor of English at York University. Her books, Shakespeare and the Performance of Girlhood and Girl Culture in the Middle Ages and Renaissance, Performance and Pedagogy have reasserted the influence of these remarkable girls whose legacy is still visible in the performance of femininity today. Well, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. I'm absolutely delighted to have you on. Thank you very much, Susanna. It's a joy to be here with you today. And your book is fascinating and covers so much. In fact, I urge people to read it immediately. But we're going to try and get into some of it today to explore this really interesting idea about girlhood in this period. And actually, you cover a longer period than we're going to consider today. You start with the first female dramatist writing plays around 950 CE. But we're going to pick up in the 15th and 16th century and we have girls who are performing at this time in civic pageants and religious drama. So I wonder if you can give us a sense of the roles that they might have been playing and what purposes there were behind these, particularly, I suppose, the relationship between these roles and the young woman as a representation of chastity and purity. We think of the division between the secular and the sacred currently as a kind of an irrefutable division and separation. But in this time, they were very much closely interconnected. So the civic pageants, the royal entries, midsummer pageants, Lord Mayor's pageants and shows, they were infused with religious symbolism. 
and religious symbolism that was continuous with religious drama. So in religious drama, we would have girls performing with candles in representations of Candlemas or with the Three Marys in representations of the visit to the sepulchre. And also, of course, in the representations of the Nativity as the Virgin Mary. And so these identifications of girls with light, with pageantry, and also with virginity then were carried over into those kinds of more secular contexts where Virgin Marys or just general virgins or saints like Saint Ursula would be trotted out to welcome the Lord Mayor of London in his inauguration or to welcome a consort who was coming from abroad or to welcome royalty when they visit a town or city. Which is exactly what happens with Catherine of Aragon, of course, when she arrives in 1501. So we're part of a long tradition there about how women are fated, I suppose, and what values and qualities in women are to be celebrated. Exactly. Girls are connected to chastity, to purity, but also to performance, also to this idea of dancing and singing and being bright and light as well. What is the end town play and how does it fit with this tradition of girls performing as the Virgin Mary? The end town play is one of the four surviving cycles of mystery pageants that we have in England and it's called N because N stands for nomen which is the Latin word for name of whatever city or town they happen to be performing in so it was a traveling pageant and so it's a little bit different from say the York cycle or Chester or Wakefield which were very much connected to a particular city and location. This was more a kind of stitched together collection of pageants which was used for traveling players who performed this story of the Bible from the beginning, the creation, to the crucifixion. But the part that I'm most interested in the end town play is the representation of the girlhood of the Virgin Mary. And so the end town is alone among the other cycles. It's alone in its representation of what was a really important feature of the culture around the story of the Virgin. The girlhood of the Virgin doesn't come up in the Bible, but there were apocryphal gospels that kind of stitched together the story about her birth to Joachim and Anna, and her presentation to the temple at the age of three, and then her betrothal to Joseph at age 14. And also the story of her not only tremendous virtue, but also her precocious learning. So at a very young age, she's able to read, and she in fact teaches the temple elders as well. So she's a precocious girl. And so this is a story that is represented in the End Town play, which is identified with East Anglia. And there are a lot of other kinds of girl plays that are associated with East Anglia. The Digby Candlemas play, for example, or the very well-known play, the Digby play of Mary Magdalene. So there's a sort of sense that this is a space for girl performance in the late Middle Ages. And yeah, it's a fascinating play. It asks for a girl around the age of three, which defies comprehension. Those of us who are familiar with toddlers, how can we imagine even the smartest three-year-old delivering these lengthy speeches? 
But I think that when you look at artistic representations of the girlhood of the Virgin, which was a really popular subject for artists, they're often not like chubby toddlers. They're often girls of a sort of an indeterminate age, somewhere between about, I don't know, six and 14 or so. They look a little bit older. And so we can imagine perhaps an older actress performing these roles. And also the way that her speeches are represented in the manuscript make it clear or at least make it possible that her speeches were performed in a kind of a collective. So there are Latin passages from the songs which were often sung collectively. So we can imagine her kind of performing her own interpretation, her vernacular translation of the psalms. It's supported by a community of other performers, which makes it possible to imagine a child actor in that context performing. Yes, that's fascinating. Do you think that these performances are designed really to instruct what correct female behaviour should be? Are they prescriptive? They are prescriptive only in the sort of letter of the law. We have one level of the virgin being identified with chastity and we have certain expectations about that in terms of female social behaviour. But once you start opening it up into issues of learning and instruction, that opens up a whole set of freedoms and possibilities for girls that really do transcend that sort of stereotype of girls as chaste, silent, and obedient. When you have girls instructing male temple elders or even members of their community, girls translating Latin into English, and girls as well performing physically on stage through dance or song. There's a whole space of freedom that is opened up there that makes those kinds of prescriptions that I think have limited our previous understanding of what girls really were doing and were capable of in the early modern period. So let's now skip on, I suppose, about a century to the late 16th century and thinking about Shakespeare's heroines, young women like Juliet, for example, do we see here a continuation or a contradiction of this tradition of the girl actor of the late medieval period? Well, Shakespeare's Juliet is a really great example, because if you think about a character that we see first around the age of three, and then around the age of 14, or as she is represented in the play, not 14. She's on the cusp of her 14th birthday. Those biographical details would put anyone familiar with the girlhood of the Virgin Mary in mind of the Virgin. And Shakespeare weaves references to maidenheads and ladybirds who are associated with the Virgin and the idea of the religion. Romeo talks about the devout religion of mine eye. So there are ways in which Juliet, even her representation as dancing, evokes the association of the girl performer with the Virgin Mary a long-standing tradition that in Shakespeare's time was suppressed by the Reformation. So we can think about Juliet in light of the Virgin, 
but of course she's a very different kind of figure in the religion of love. She's someone who rushes headlong into love and sex and marriage at a very young age, defying her parents' authority as opposed to the sort of divine ordinations that the Virgin Mary follows. So she's very different as well, but I think that part of the iconic value that Shakespeare gives her has to do with his consistent representation of her through those images of the Virgin that would have still been very present in the mind of his audience. That sort of thing is so helpful because it provides context that we just don't have when we read or see these plays because we think of a boy actor and here you're telling us about a kind of cultural memory that would have informed the understanding of the audience. And if we think about ways in which girls are being depicted at the time of Shakespeare, we also have the records that you draw on of the court of the Office of the Revels, which gives us a sense of clothing and the performances at court. Do you think we see here a restriction of female performance to specific ideas about femininity? Or what roles do we see there and what can we learn about ideas of girls in the roles at the court? So there are, in the aftermath of the Reformation, the medieval parts that girls played, the Virgin Mary and various Virgin Martyrs, those shifted into a more classically informed roles such as the nymph and the shepherdess that didn't evoke those iconoclastic resistances to Catholic figures such as the saints and the martyrs. I think on the one hand, we can see a real continuity between these figures of virginal purity and chastity with the nymphs, who of course, in terms of their classical antecedents, predate any Virgin Martyrs or the Virgin Mary. They also provide for opening up and potential for experimentation and freedom. So again, it's the sense that we have these iconic figures, the nymph or the shepherdess, but then when we watch how they're imagined, there's a lot of space that is created for them. Nymphs are understood not only in terms of their dramatic speeches, but also in terms of their dramatic movement swirling fabrics and fancy footwork. And so this provides a huge space for girls performing in court masks. And the shepherdess is more of a figure of learning and dialogue. We think of those pastoral representations of shepherds in dialogue. And so shepherdesses participate in that extremely learned pastoral tradition, which goes all the way back to Virgil. And so Shepherdesses are often represented in terms of their weighty and philosophical speeches. We have lots of space opening up for girls in the 16th century as performers. So the titles are perhaps on the surface quite limiting, but the way they are explored and represented become full of possibility. That's often the case with women in general, is that there are very specific roles that women are often categorized by wife, mother, for example, but they're very superficial and we all have to carve out our own relationship to those iconic 
roles or patterns in our own way as feminists. I think that's a very good observation. And it's absolutely true for women throughout time, particularly in centuries where the title of the roles that they could have was so restricted, but women found ways to kind of bubble up. Power exists in nooks and crannies. One scholar wrote, let's think a bit more about these roles that you've talked about, because there's so much to unpack. So this idea of the nymph, first of all, perhaps, the nymph exists somewhere between innocence and sexual allure. What do you think the popularity of the nymph tells us about the particular experience of young women between childhood and marriage? This is the conundrum that girls face. Girls are, on the one hand, innocent children, and on the other hand, preparing for an adult life that is often defined by sexual activity and regeneration and motherhood. So it's at that crux between those two roles that girlhood really exists. It's also a space, as I find in my research, for tremendous creative possibility for girls before they are married, before they are full-time mothers, before they're running households. There is a space where they can be creative and active. And a lot of the most exciting accomplishments I found of historical girls take place in that sweet spot before adult responsibility. Girlhood is a place of tremendous possibility. Even going back to Hrotsvita of Gandersheim, writing plays for girls in a convent setting, they are all plays about girls and girl figures, virgin martyrs, navigating this tension between their own desires for a kind of spiritual dedication and chastity and the desires and expectations that are placed upon them by would-be husbands and fathers, suitors who see them as sexual beings. And often the martyrdoms themselves are also focused on their sexuality, breasts being cut off and so on. So they're being sexualized. And this is something that girls would have faced, especially in the religious context for the girl students of Hrotsvita of Gandersheim, that tension between remaining in a convent setting and choosing a life, a more sort of dynastic future as wives and mothers. Step back in time with me, Tristan Hughes, on the Ancients from History hit as we unearth Pompeii's buried secrets in a special mini-series. You'll discover what life was like in this town before the eruption of Vesuvius, the bustling streets, the roar of the gladiators, and the hidden lives of sex workers. Lost for over 1,500 years and then uncovered, Pompeii's saga continues. With the help of leading experts, We'll bust myths and reveal startling new research. So get ready for a dramatic journey through the echoes of the past. Experience Pompeii like never before on the Ancients from History hit. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. How does the performance of Cupid's Banishment in 1617 fit into this tradition? It was performed for Queen Anne at a time when she was living in Greenwich and quite separate from her husband, King James. And it was performed by the girls of what was called Deptford School for Girls. It's funny because actually all we really know about Deptford School for Girls is that it performed Cupid's Banishment. But they performed a court mask that featured dance and embroidery. But the narrative was focused around the banishment of Cupid, this figure of desire from their all-female space. And Cupid is represented as a kind of surly adolescent boy. And the conflict between Cupid and the nymphs is represented as a kind of schoolyard, boys against the girls, exchange of insults. So Cupid calls them milksop ladies, which is insulting because it represents them as children. One of the things I'm struck by with regards to the nymph is there's a sense in which she can transform herself to protect against the threat of sexual violence. And I wondered how this fits into what seems to be a kind of tradition of theatricalised violence against women in plays like John Webster's The Duchess of Malfi or Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus. Yeah, so we have examples of girls performing as nymphs in entertainments for Elizabeth I. So Elizabeth Bridges, a 17-year-old, performed the role of Daphne in an entertainment at Sudley Castle. And in this entertainment, she escapes the clutches of Apollo and in fact finds safety in the group of women that Elizabeth's court offers. So Elizabeth provides an even better option than the laurel tree for safety. So that sense of the community of women as a source of safety is interesting in that regard. It reflects back as well to Cupid's banishment and to the dynamic of a girl's school and a female court as a space of safety from the kinds of challenges that Queen Anne was facing with her own marital struggles with King James. So we have that sense of female community, but then you're asking how it gets represented on Shakespeare's stage, and you gave the example of Webster as well, of Shakespeare's contemporaries, and we have the figure of Echo, who appears at the end of the Duchess of Malfi. And she's not a figure of 
female community at all. She's a lonely figure identified with the relics of the castle where Antonio finds himself. And she's dismissed as a dead thing, even though she's trying to warn him, fly thy fate. So she foresees his future as he's about to be killed by Basola, the keeper of the horse, in the next scene. But she's also a figure of the repression of the female voice, right? Echo was a very chatty nymph who was punished by Juno, not only for her sexual attractiveness, but also for her verbal irrepressibility. And the curse was that she was only able to echo and she was unable to express her love for Narcissus. So it's interesting that the example you gave of the Duchess of Malfi presents nymphs in a very different light, one where voice is denied and messages are not listened to. Of course, this is a tragedy where the Duchess herself and her desires is thwarted and denied by her brothers. It's interesting to think about the way the figure of the nymph gets represented when you turn to a female author like Lady Rachel Fane, who spells nymph in the most adorable way, N-I-M-P-T-H. We can imagine her pronouncing it nymph. And she takes up the figure of the nymph where Shakespeare leaves off in The Tempest. So the sort of that interrupted wedding mask in Act Four of The Tempest stops with the dance of the nymphs and the reapers and with the alienation of Venus and Cupid from Ceres. And Lady Rachel Fane, when she takes up that story, she wants to bring them all together again in community and in forgiveness. And her mask is an attempt to create a reunion where Shakespeare has represented instead alienation and separation. Let's think then about the other role you talked about, the shepherdess. Do you see here a continuing tradition of female representation linked to notions of purity and motherhood that we've seen developed in the medieval period, more than with the nymph, perhaps? The shepherdess, I believe, is a figure that was first dramatized by a mother. Lady Elizabeth Russell created the figure of two shepherdesses, Isabella and Sibylla, for her two daughters, Elizabeth and Anne, to perform before Elizabeth I when she came to their home at Bisham Abbey in 1592. This is the first example I've been able to find on the English stage of a shepherdess figure. And so it's interesting to think about the creation of this figure by a mother who is working very hard to secure the future of her daughters. There had been difficulty with the inheritance, and so the daughters were left without their own fortunes, and so had to find a future for themselves. And Lady Elizabeth Russell was hoping that they would be embraced by the court of Elizabeth I, which they were, although I believe they also got into some trouble. But she's writing this figure in order to present her daughters in their best light to the sovereign. She represents them as embroidering samplers, which is the pastime of the court ladies in Elizabeth I's court. 
but she also represents them as chatting wittily and rejecting the advances of Pan, who is ultimately converted by their virtue and also the appearance of the queen herself, who converts all to chastity and obedience. They are represented as witty and as learned as no doubt those girls were. Their mother was incredibly learned. She interweaves many references to Ovid's Metamorphoses and other classical references into her entertainment. Let's go from there to think about other female writers taking up this role. Elizabeth and Jane Cavendish composed their drama a pastoral in this tradition in the 1640s. Whilst Elizabeth herself is in a sort of protracted girlhood, so she's married but she hasn't moved out of her family home and so she's still chaste. So on the one hand we've had the example of a mother creating this role to showcase her daughters as much as anything else. Do you think that this example of the Cavendishes shows us how girls could use it to confront their role in the world? what the play describes as the choice between a captive or a shepherdess's life. Yes, the sisters were writing under circumstances of enormous pressure, but circumstances we can relate to having recently experienced the lockdowns of the pandemic, where the future is uncertain and we needed to stay home in order to be safe. That was very much the experience of the sisters as they remained at home in Welbeck Abbey during the time of the Civil Wars when their brother and father were off fighting. They were also keeping their home safe and their possessions safe when their home was annexed by the parliamentarian forces. They needed to keep an eye on on their own homes. So they were very conscious of what it meant to be captive and in their wonderful play, The Concealed Fancies. They have a whole allegory of captivity that they represent, the things you get up to when you're stuck at home, the various closets and cabinets that you raid for amusement. And so the shepherdess was a figure for those sisters of freedom as well as of representation of their own tremendous learning. Their father, William Cavendish, made sure that they were very well educated and gave them access to his tremendous library. And the shepherdess is a space for them that represents their own access to learning and culture and authorship that was supported by their father. And the shepherdesses in the pastoral refused to dance until their relatives come home. It also represents that sort of sense of their own protracted girlhood as they're waiting for the wars to end and for their lives to take up again and continue. I'd like to finish by talking about Elizabeth Carey, who's generally considered the first published female dramatist. Her play, The Tragedy of Mariam, is normally thought about as the first commercially published play written by a woman, and it's often discussed in light of her adult life. But she probably wrote it as a teenager. So how does it reflect a younger life? One thing that is often forgotten about Elizabeth Carey is that she was herself the author of a translation. As an 11-year-old girl living at Burford Priory, she translated Abraham Ortelius's Teatrum Orbis Terrarum, the first atlas, the first geographical writing. And so this translation was something that infused her understanding of the geography of the space that she came 
to write about in The Tragedy of Miriam. The frontispiece of the Ortelius Atlas has on it these four female figures representing the continents, Africa, Asia, Europe, and America. And I think she infuses her understanding of the female characters of Miriam and Salome, iconically attached to certain geographical locations. Miriam is identified with Jerusalem, with a heavenly city, Salome, with Egypt, with Cleopatra, and their contrast is also between lightness and dark. So there's a way in which that childhood experience of translation and of embodying geography through gender shapes her understanding of those characters in the tragedy that she wrote as a teenager. Do you think it also reflects her own wish to understand her place in the world? I think so. We can envision what it would be like. A lot of the girls that I write about lived fairly circumscribed existences. We can think about the young Elizabeth Carey at home. And then even after she married, she was often basically placed under house arrest by her mother-in-law and then her husband. Lives of incredible geographical limitation. Or the Cavendish sisters as well, stuck at home. And so the process of translation, of reading, and of authorship, they all provide a window into the world outside the domestic sphere. Let us end then by thinking about what you think the legacy is of these female performers and writers in the larger dramatic tradition of England. When, after the restoration of the monarchy, women were admitted on the professional stage, they were girls. Anne Bracegirdle was known as the little girl. Nell Gwynne was a teenager. Elizabeth Barry, they were teenagers when they were beginning their careers. So there's a sense that the prevalence of girl performers in early modern England was revisited. We often think of it as the importing of a French model that was brought back from exile, but we can also think about it as the continuation of a tradition of girls performing. The figure of Ariel in The Tempest is a male figure as Shakespeare envisions him, but Ariel dresses up as a sea nymph early on in the play, and in the aftermath of the Restoration, those Restoration adaptations of The Tempest, that part of Ariel was often performed by a girl, often a very gymnastically talented girl, dancer, a singer. And that part remained female in the hands of actresses for a very long time through the 19th century. The shepherdess, I think we could think about the figure of Bo Peep in Toy Story and how that figure starts as a fairly static embodiment of demure chastity or loyalty, but she becomes a kind of a feminist heroine by Toy Story 4 with a cape and breeches and her hair loose. And over the evolution of the Toy Story franchise, the shepherdess becomes a very free-thinking and independent figure. I love that. Well, that's great. Thank you very much. This has been a really interesting exploration of an aspect of the cultural world of this period that I don't think many people would have been familiar with and a part of the female experience that is or has been till now 
much understudied, you know, not something that has really been at the forefront of people's thinking about women. So thank you very much for opening up this period of women's lives and their performance of the roles of girlhood in various ways. Thank you very much, Susanna. Thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.